Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. My guest today is Malcolm Cheyuna, aka Tinksorg who is a Swedish writer and um, whose work I think I first encountered um, in an essay called On Strasserism and the Decline of the Left um, a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, since then have followed uh, regularly in various publications, uh, including ones I also contribute to, like Unheard and American Affairs. In any case, thanks for uh, joining me. Thank you for having me on. Um, I have to say... Um, I found your episodes, if you're doing the mutual back scratching things, yeah. thing here, I, I found your episodes on like COVID very clarifying, actually, like partly the, the episode about um, COVID as the sort of controlled demolition of the economic system, but also yeah. the, the, the plague as myth, because I think that really touches on something um, kind of related to what we're supposed to talk about today, which is, you know, the, the future of class conflict in the, the current decade. Um, and yeah. we, we have this huge sort of dust up in Canada right now, of all places, where um, truckers and their allies, so to speak, have come together to sort of barricade the capital uh, in opposition to all of these mandates, which uh, I think that you and I would both agree, the mandates don't really necessarily hew to only um, like disease prevention logic. There's, there's something much more like fundamental questions of control here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, I mean, it's been particularly clear just in that the um, initial claims about the sort of sterilizing effect of the vaccines, you know, however else we, we think about the, you know, data concerning, um, you know, severe disease prevention and so on, you know, that it's, it's been extremely clear in this most recent wave, at least that, um, you know, the, the, the sort of public health and epidemiological argument for these mandates has collapsed, um, at least based on, you know, publicly available data about um, the spread of the virus in areas that are, you know, that are sort of 90 plus percent vaccinated. So, you know, clearly there's, and, and yet nevertheless, the, this, this is not, I mean, okay, that's, this isn't entirely true, actually. It seems in part in, in response to um, this uh, truck convoy, there, there has been some rolling back of, of vaccine mandates um, in, in a few Canadian provinces. Um, but in general, you know, the drive to continue expanding these mandates has, has not abated. Yeah. And, and, you know, the drive to expand the mandates tend to follow a certain, you know, political divide that we see in a lot of other things, you know, the divide between the rural and the urban, between the highly educated and people with a high school diploma. So, there's not necessarily like 
that much really going on with the, the, the physical virus, so to speak. Like it has some characteristics and it doesn't seem to be all that bothered by these vaccination programs at present. But like the, the, the sort of shunning and the social dynamic, dynamics of, you know, masking in Northern Virginia or something like that is, like it's, it's actually really interesting. So, so if you look at, if you, if you look at this, trucking brouhaha in Canada. Um, the, it, it's like the, the left, I mean, you and I both recall when um, the left was quote unquote resurgent, um, you know, five, six years ago, um, you had the financial crisis and then you had Syriza and Podemos which were hailed as these sort of uh, parties of a new type who were sort of poised to really uh, uh, change politics as we knew it and really sort of bring the working class and the students and the professors together. And then you had uh, Bernie Sanders and then eventually Jeremy Corbyn entering the scene. And after that point, uh, like people were just riding high on the hog, so to speak. And then all of that collapsed in um, 2019. And then, you know, you had the final aftershock with Bernie Sanders' pretty, like, pathetic um, performance in the struggle for control of the Democratic Party. And where I'm going with this is just that we've had this period of the left sort of memeing or, like, pretending to speak for the working class to interpret what the working class wants. But in, in 2022, we have an actual, like, politically active working class doing its own thing, sort of setting its own priorities, picking its own fights and so on. And the response of the left has been apocalyptic in some ways. Um, I, I linked before we started, um, I linked you this, this magnificent, I would say, like Twitter post, which just said, like, you know, we have all of these fascists in Ottawa, right? And we need, um, like, we need labor. We need a labor movement on the scene to, to fight all these fascists in their trucks. And then someone else says that, you know, I actually work at, on a shop floor of a Teamsters union, and I'm sorry, but the truck drivers are actually at the protest. They're not going to fight the protest. Like, we in the left, we lost labor for some mysterious reason at some point. But most people just say, no, you know, like, these truckers, they're, like, enemies of the working class, whatever, like, um, or, or they just say, you know, the workers are the enemies of the revolution at this point. So, like, it's the cat is out of the bag, as the saying goes at this point. Like, there's the, nobody even attempts to hide the sort of vendetta or um, class contradiction existing between sort of the, the managerial classes and the, the people who actually work in the real economy. The dream right. is dead. Um... Right. And, you know, it, it seems to me the COVID has sort of been instrumental in this 
evolution because I mean, I mean, from the beginning, I mean, and at least in the United States, I mean, of course you're in the, um, the glorious uh, Florida of Europe, right? Yeah. Where sort of Ron, Ron DeSantis thought uh, rules supreme, but um, you know, in the U S um, and, and in the UK, you know, th- this collapse of these sort of left populist movements coincided perfectly with um, the, you know, the COVID, um, the initial COVID response. And, you know, it, it, in the UK, at least, um, as I understand it, it really, you know, it, it mobilized the, um, this, all the sort of disaffected, um, you know, Corbynistas, um, sort of rallied to force the government to lock down and, and you know, create this kind of panic. Um, and, you know, in the U.S., um, basically, it, it was also clear that the, the energies of whatever, you know, remained of the sort of Sanders movement went into all of this kind of um, moral grandstanding about... Um, staying at home and masking up and, and so on. And later into, you know, the, um, the vaccine, you know, the, uh, vaccine mandate agenda. So, you know, it was extremely clear that this was, this was where these, um, these sort of energies, which had been sort of cut loose by the collapse of the program they were attached to went. And in, in effect, that's meant that they've repeatedly been channeled towards these kind of, punitive um, policies, right? Which are, which are directed precisely at the, the groups that, you know, it's, it's as if they're sort of punishing for their failure to rally behind the, the proper uh, ones back in, you know, 2019, 2020. Yeah, and, and I think in the British case, there was some period, like a, a, a gap between the collapse of, of Corbyn and, you know, the appearance of the new god, so to speak. Right, yeah. And, and, and that gap was mostly taken up by people just sort of, you know, vomiting venom all over the working class as being like ignorant shuds and this sort of transition into some sort of, I don't know, like hyper, like technocratic liberalism. Like, so, so I think that process would have gone on even without COVID, but it certainly proved a, a good sort of causes belli. But what is also interesting is, like, the left has, to people who don't really understand how the left, like the quote-unquote radical left sort of works, um, you have this, or you had... I guess you still do, um, this gender, uh, no, sorry, not gender, but, but age gap um, in the sense that you have all of these sort of young activists and then you have like a strata of people um, who, uh, I think the one American term is red diaper babies, but, but essentially like, you know, most, mostly people inside academia, like old professors. Um, so, some some American names here are would be um, Richard Wolf, um, people like well maybe not American but you have like Leo Panitch or you had Leo Panitch he died recently um, Leo Panitch from Canada Sam Jin Gimden uh, people like Ellen Makes Wood um, I guess you could sort of put 
David Harvey in this category and so on. But what is really interesting in these like last 12, 18 months is the sort of disciplining of, of this older cadre, so to speak. Like, you know, nowadays, and I think you mentioned this in, in an earlier episode, like someone like Slavo Žižek, who is now, um, or who re- until fairly recently was sort of, on the margins of the quote unquote movement because he had like non-standard takes regarding immigration, for example. But I mean, he's sort of returned to the fold in the sense that, you know, true communism is, you know, just letting Dr. Fauci do whatever he wants. And then you have David Graeber making the, the, the completely baffling argument that, you know, the state withering away as in, you know, society transitioning to anarchism, that how that looks is actually sort of having technocrats, you know, decide everything for the benefit, for the good of the people. Because when technocrats decide things on behalf of, you know, the ignorant masses, like they're not actually using force or exercising power. They're just sort of this autonomous, like immune response of the body politic or whatever. So, like, there's absolutely no space for dissent, even for these people who have tenure and, you know, are living in the last decade or two of their lives and so on. Like, most of their life is behind them, not in front of them. But, but like, they can't dissent. When you mentioned um, Richard Wolff, who was one of the few in this kind of, yeah. um, the senior cadre of sort of... Um, illustrious academics uh, who who did um, dissent on the question of of vaccine mandates and and also, you know, brought up the um, significant class divide regarding vaccination. And of course, was, as you said, kind of disciplined by the the younger um, sort of professional left for this heresy. Yeah, it, it was actually fairly amazing because, you know, you have all of these huge strikes, um, like pilots, you know, wildcat strikes at airlines, um, like garbage collectors refusing to pick up garbage, garbage, stuff like that. And then, you know, you have the narrative, oh, these are just fascist shots who are stupid and driven by stupidity and malice. And then Wolf says, well, you know, striking that's actually kind of, you know, class warfare. And I mean, like these workers, if they say they're really mad at sort of, you know, very distant bureaucrats making rules that they have no sort of knowledge of how they will impact people on the work floor and workers sort of demand regulation that's closer to the material reality they inhabit. Like that's actually not a completely sort of national socialist Heinrich Himmler kind of demand. Like we, we should probably like give that some thought. And everyone just went totally bananas, told him to either shut the fuck up or basically, you know, join the Republican Party or the Oath Keepers or whatever. Like he was given one chance to repent before, you know, the Inquisition was called in. Um, so there's this, really, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And so, you know, one way to think about the function of the, 
you know, the, this sort of, um, you know, you've also talked about it in terms of um, this, you know, elite overproduction thesis, which we could get into, but, you know, that you have this kind of, so you have these, um, you know, much better positioned kind of um, eminence gris, you know, sort of figures of the intellectual left who are actually, I mean, as happened with Zizek too, when he dissented on, um, on immigration, as you said, and also on sort of trans issues um, some years ago, do you have this kind of, um, you know, this, this sort of, um, you know, revolutionary guard or sort of, um, you know, red guard type, you know, Maoist insurgency of, of the sort of young, underemployed um, sort of media hangers and academia hangers on of the, the, the younger left who, you know, one of the things they'll do is kind of discipline these, these older figures, but then more generally, they will also serve as the sort of, um, as the vanguard. I mean, you know, and you can think about this in, in the COVID context, you know, often there, I mean, and today in particular, as the democratic party is, is sort of for, you know, pragmatic reasons, um, retreating from the more extreme COVID policies, you know, they are really at the forefront of those who are demanding, um, you know, not only a, a continuation of an expansion of, you know, vaccine mandates and things like that, but also who are actually demanding that we return to lockdown in perpetuum. <laughs> and yeah. who, are, who are sort of, um, you know, and so the function they're playing within this kind of larger take economy is to, um, you know, to, to make maximal demands um, on the front of various things that, you know, the sort of um, the sort of mainstream liberal technocracy has, you know, has embraced to various extents. And then it it on one hand gives it a kind of um, gives it a kind of impetus to um, to do these things and, get, you know, provides it with these kind of moral arguments um, in favor of them. Um, but then it also kind of enables it to, um, you know, pursue a more kind of middle path. Um, and, you know, but, but it, it, it sort of, you know, forces it to negotiate with these sort of maximalist positions within its coalition. Yeah, and the, the maximalist positions are just sort of, uh, not only are they, you know, maximalist, but they are also incredibly sort of, um transitory in the sense that most people saying we should totally lock down will whenever sort of someone points out any like negative consequences of previous lockdown say i don't know what you're talking about we've never locked down like there have never been any lockdowns in the us like this is just a shod talking point true lockdowns have never been tried yeah and and yeah. so so this is sort of it's an interesting dynamic because the, I guess with the lockdown stuff, you can always sort of hide behind sort of like epidemiological concerns and say that, oh, I don't hate the working class. That's not the problem. I'm just concerned about public health. But, but like that sort of charade is wearing awfully thin in a way. Like, and, and the sort of, um, I, I guess, taboo in sort of delineating yourself uh, if you're sort of a 
HR, Karen, like to sort of say, I belong to this class. They, we are not the working class. We don't share their interests, but like, let's work together. This saying something like that was completely impossible up until recently. Um, but now you can not only say that, but you can say also fuck the working class. Like if you work, you know, a DoorDash or you drive a truck or uh, like you're an engineer at some water war- works or whatever, like you are a potential enemy, like by virtue of, of not being part of the HR like cost. And, and I think that in a way, like a lot of this lockdown stuff is... Like you, you need the casus belli in order to really sort of pursue and like an open conflict with the shots. Um, and and then yeah, I mean, I think another thing that I've seen happen, you know, just locally is, um, you know, with the the mandates that have been put in place. Um, you know, the other thing that happens is that the service workers are sort of enlisted. Um, in this kind of Karen role right there. <laughs> so, yeah. so they actually, you know, you're, you're sort of forced to become a Karen in order to continue, um, you know, um, get, you know, having your job because basically you have to check people's, um, you know, check people's vaccination status, um, you know, ensure that they're wearing their mask properly. Um, you know, now we're moving into, in some places, having to ensure they're wearing the right kind of mask um, since we've, we've decided now that cloth masks actually don't work. Um, but, you know, so interestingly, what, you know, what happens to one subset of the, the working class now is that they're, you know, they're either forced to um, enforce the, um, these kind of draconian and exclusionary mandates that are put in place um, or they can't keep, I mean, they not only have to, um, so, you know, they're not only forced to um, obey the mandates in order to keep their jobs, they're also enforced, they're also forced to become, you know, the, the sort of, um, to stand on the front lines of enforcement of them. So in a sense, they're, you know, it's also a way of sort of you know, forcing you to choose a side, you know, you have to essentially become a sort of functionary of HR Karenism or be kept out of the, you know, you know, be excluded from the possibility of earning a living. Yeah. And I think this ties into like the reason why there's such, such amazing paranoia regarding like the reliability uh, of, of, you know, non HR workers, so to speak, like in, in Canada right now, um, people are losing their goddamn minds because they, you know, they've been singing or, you know, shouting all cops are bastards for five years straight, saying that like you are just miserable little fascist piglets and so on and so forth. And then, you know, the truckers come in and it turns out the cops are like fraternizing with the demonstrators. And everyone's like, how could this happen? How could these people that we hate and treat like garbage and call, you know, worthless sort of immoral fascist goose-stepping pigs, how could they side with a bunch of working class people over us? 
And then people are sort sort of yelling for, you know, the military has to come in. We need a total rolling purge of all institutions with shuds to replace them with, you know, reliable cops that love HR departments. And, And there's something really sort of megalomanical about like these dreams of absolute like purging, disciplining, all that stuff. Like people are openly talking about just, you know, bring in, bring in the army and shoot all of these people. Like just shoot them in the head, just kill them. But also like the sort of total impotence when, you know, one of them goes up to, you know, a cop, uh, complaining about all of these truckers honking and like, this is illegal. We have to do something about it. And the cop just answers, well, I would do something about it, but you see, I'm really busy eating this donut. So I can't help you. Goodbye. And you know, th- there's. It yeah. Has... I mean, yeah. Go ahead. Well, so a sort of local version of this that, you know, is, has been very evident to me for a while is, um, you know, the, the one place where you don't, you, you can, I mean, and I can attest for, you know, um, most of the past two years, um, you, you have not ever really had to wear a mask in the New York City, um, <clears throat> you know, public transit system, the subway system. And the reason for that is the, the people who you were almost guaranteed to never see wearing a mask, particularly, maybe it was slightly different in 2020, but particularly since, you know, 2021 is cops and MTA workers, right? The actual transit workers, they are either not wearing masks at all, or they have them, you know, on a sort of chin straps. So, you know, basically what's going on here is that, um, you know, there's, you know, whereas if you go into a, and, and this is also differentiated on class lines, if you go into a business that sort of caters to the, the, you know, petite bourgeoisie, the, the sort of um, the PMC of Brooklyn or whatever, then, you know, they will check your vaccine card and ID and, you know, enforce masking and so on. If you go into just a regular place, they basically don't, um, or they, they enforce it in a totally perfunctory and minimal way. In the subway system, it's, there's literally no enforcement at all. And the reason is simply that, um, there's no way to control the infor- the people who would be the enforcers of it yeah. because basically the, between the cops and the um, transit workers, you know, these are basically the strongest unions in the city. And so they, there's no way to sort of coerce them into going along with this. Um, yeah, they just and- have too much, they have too much independent power to, you know, be kind of um, brought along with the, um, you know, w- with the dictates of the, the of HR Karenism. Yeah, and, and that's kind of, I've seen people post like actual confrontations where, you know, cops are supposed to be masked, like this is the law or some city ordinance or whatever. Like you, you have to follow the rules, you're a cop and the cop just laughs at the person or just shrugs and walks away, like doesn't give one jot about, um, um, like all of these sort of mandates and so on. And at that point, what are you going to do? Are you going to sort of hire Brooklyn podcasters to replace the cops? Like they don't want to do that sort of work. And like there's no sort of politically reliable 
replacements to be found. And, and you know, the, the sort of fear on display in, in Canada where like these truckers move in and they sort of like what they're doing right now is like they have all of this sort of logistical support. Um, their GoFundMe got basically stolen in the sense that the company says, oh, well, you have one week to file for a refund. And if you don't, we're going to donate it to, you know, a legitimate charity, uh, that, like a, a hardworking NGO is going to get like these $9 million. Um, but like, even without that money, they're basically setting up uh, their own sort of support structures. They're, they're, building roadblocks by essentially removing the wheels from like old broken down cars so that they're really hard to move. And moreover, what makes things even more problematic is that you have police fraternizing with the demonstrators, but you also have um, the the mayor uh, and his office trying to call in tow trucks to, to uh, um, tow the trucks away. And every tow trucking company just says, sorry, everyone has COVID, we can't help you. And uh, we're gonna have COVID for, for the next nine months. We pencil that in. So uh, don't bother calling us back. Um, so, so you have like, once these different parts of the productive economy that keeps the lights on and the water flowing and so on, once they really start to, and, and like the, the Canadian thing is pretty haphazard. Like it's, it's not exactly some sort of well-planned, well-thought-out siege of the PMCs. It's just kind of like a spur-of-the-moment thing in a, in a way. But even a spur-of-the-moment thing by the working class puts the PMCs in such a terrible situation. And, you know, um, the, the, the thing you learned, or at least I learned, and everyone I know learned, like when you joined the left, is that you're lo- taught to treat the working class as this inert mass, like this sack of potatoes. And, you know, if the, uh, the, the corporativist unions led by good sort of leftist comrades, like if they really do their um, due diligence and really motivate this sack of potatoes, maybe the, the, the potatoes can actually move and do something minor. But without the, the critical function that is the leftist commissar, like nothing will ever happen because the working class is too stupid and lazy and just like morally... Um, you know, degenerate to ever really pull something impressive off. And people used to believe that, you know, since, since almost the fall of the Soviet Union. But in 2022, it seems like people are, are sort of starting to not believe that anymore. Like the perennial complaint on the left when I was a part of it, was just, you know, why won't these workers wake up? Why won't the workers of the world unite and fight? And then they actually start uniting and fighting and everyone loses their minds. Like, holy shit, we have to do something about this. 
Yeah, and I mean, I think um, a couple a couple points here. Um, you know, one is part of what we're seeing, as you said, is this kind of um, you know the, these sort of un unguided and sort of largely disintermediated sort of expressions. Um, and, you know, this kind of goes to something that we were discussing um, before we started recording, which is this whole phenomenon of intermediation, right? So, and I think, you know, here we have to also think about the tech industry, right? Yeah. Because as you said, okay, so, you know, GoFundMe um, basically <laughs> does this, um, well, you, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to, um, let you give this money to these evil chuds. So, you know, you have a week to request a refund or else we're going to give it to the causes we like. Um, and so this is, um, you know, th this is a, pr a pretty typical kind of, um, thing. And we can assume that within the sort of GoFundMe staff, there was, you know, some, I, I didn't really look into this, but you know, I assume there was, you know, to some extent, a kind of ground up um, insurgency within the the white collar staff of GoFundMe to do this, just as within Spotify, there's yeah. sort of, you know, demands to, to you know, deplatform Joe Rogan. So basically, we have, um, you know, on one hand, these forces that are that are able to, in part, because they have some kind of um, leverage on the functioning of the you know, the, 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 the real economy, um, you know, are, are able to, you know, kind of throw a wrench in the works. Um, and then on the other hand, we have, you know, another kind of leverage, which is that of, you know, say people within the tech industry who can, you know, um, put their foot down and decide, <clears throat> no, th this money isn't going to go here or no, um, you know, regardless of how popular this is, it's not going to have a platform. Um, so, you know, I think this is also an aspect of how the, the expansion of big tech um, into large parts of the economy has, has been a sort of, um, you know, ha has created a means for this kind of um, PMC overproduced elite class to, you know, how to obtain a, kind, a, a certain degree of leverage, right? Um, yeah, and, which which is generally opposed to this other kind of leverage of those who are attached to the real economy. Yeah, and the the interesting thing, I think that intermediation is is a central concept to keep in mind here. I was sort of rereading a bit of James Barnham, and you know when he he talks about the managerial society, he's sort of um, predicting something that will happen, drawing from trends going on. Uh, during, you know, uh, the period where he's writing this, which is, you know, during the New Deal, essentially. And he, he considers New Dealism uh, to be like a, a sort of slow replacement of like old capitalist uh, presuppositions about the world with something else, but but he doesn't consider like the ideology or or like the different sort of strands of like the New Deal um, project to be a systematized like managerial ideology. I think that wokeness is because every woke demand that you you'd care to name 
is, an, is a demand for intermediation. So to take a couple of examples here, like the, the demands in Hollywood, for example, to, to have, you know, we need to have more trans, lesbian, black femmes, furries, and so on. Like you can't make a movie unless you have a trans, black, lesbian, furry. But if you are, you know, a regular old, you know, Asian woman or whatever who's writing the script, obviously you can't use your imagination or empathy to sort of write a character that's not an Asian woman. You have to have an intermediary, uh, uh, someone who has an official sort of credentialist position uh, mediating between like your script, the characters you want to write, and you like being the writer. So you, you call up a racial equity consultant, which is an actual job title in Hollywood now. And you, you say, okay, well, I want to write this black person. So how much, how much do I have to tie you? Like how much tribute do I have to pay in order to get approval from you as an intermediary so I can include this black character in my script? And, you know, take Joe Rogan um, and the sort of perennial rebellion against Joe Rogan. Like he had this guy on who, who was sort of critical in inventing the current mRNA technology used in these vaccines. Um, and you read the sort of uh, um, the letter, uh, the open letter against Joe Rogan, the scourge of Joe Rogan. They're not saying like, this guy is wrong. Like he said that, you know, there are so many sides to a hexagon, but there's actually so many sides. Like their, their complaint is that Joe Rogan peddles misinformation or disinformation. And misinformation is not untrue information. Um, just as like correct information, like information that's sort of kosher is not necessarily true at all. Like it can be just completely wrong, which a lot of these sort of guidances and COVID have been, but that's not the problem. Like it's, it's not a question of right and wrong. It's a question of, do you have the proper intermediaries? Like it's not a problem necessarily to talk to the inventor of mRNA vaccines, but you have to have the proper sort of institutional intermediary. Like you can't have Joe Rogan just talking to the guy. Like, uh, people on CNN will say what I'm saying right now pretty much openly that the problem is that, you know, the CNN is not sort of judging, acting as a proper intermediary to filter the information that the common people need to know compared to, you know, all that other stuff. Information, even if true, without a proper intermediary is like, essentially pres prescribed today by our big institutions. Right. And, you know, in some ways we can think of this as, you know, in, in terms of the, um, so we have uh, the, the sort of rise of big tech and um, <clears throat> the, um, you know, the sort of, um, rise of web 2.0 and so on, right? And so on one hand, we have this kind of 
um, pro- or these various um, processes of disintermediation, which, you know, in various ways, um, you know, do things like um, they, they, for example, gut journalism as an industry, right? So um, you, you end up having, um, I, I mean, so, I mean, there are a few interesting effects here at least in the US, um, you know, on one hand, you have an incredible centralization of the news around just a handful of sort of mega um, sort of corporate news purveyors, right? Um, and then on the other hand, you have these these other tendencies, you know, which was initially expressed in the rise of like the blogosphere in the 2000s, that was then kind of absorbed back into legacy media to some extent. And then more recently with Substack, you have the kind of... Um, you have the unbundling and disaggregation again, which is also a disintermediation, right? And so hence the sort of moral panics around Substack have been very similar, right? Because there's this idea that, um, that there's this idea that, I mean, I mean, it's exactly the same thing, right? That, um, you know, it's irresponsible for Substack to let, um, uh, to let people simply say things without some kind of editorial oversight, which effectively means kind of ideological um, regulation and enforcement. And so, you know, you have kind of these, these economic tendencies that have sort of precaritized, um, you know, people who might have ended up working in journalism and things like that. And so in a sense, you know, their, their demands are largely to, you know, be able to reestablish themselves, um, within the sort of information economy, but as sort of regulators, um, who, who get to, um, you know, who gets to sort of vouchsafe information as, as not misinformation. Right? Yeah, and, and, and if you look at these demands regarding COVID, like a lot of people who are sort of like, sometimes this is a subtext, sometimes you don't even have to read between the lines because people would say this explicitly. But like the, the end game of this COVID mania it's just a creation of another set of regulators and intermediaries. Like I'm gonna have to talk to my fucking like respiratory virus witch doctor to see what the auguries are. Like, can I go to the beach? Well, you know, you have to call this hotline and consult the oracles. And you know, these signs are not good. Right, and you have, I mean, and what's one thing that I've found fascinating that I think is, is sort of not, um maybe hasn't been sufficiently theorized and accounted for, but, you know, very much is, is easy to make sense of in these terms is that, you know, one thing that distinguishes this kind of, you know, if you want to use the language of biopolitics, like this biopolitical moment is the rise of these kind of localized public health bureaucracies. Yeah. You know, even, um, I mean, so, you know, one example that I wrote about recently was, um, you know, in this new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, you know, one thing people noticed in the credits was like, there's a whole sequence of of positions that, you know, so in effect, just to produce a sort of TV show, you have to have your own public health bureaucracy, right? And you, I've also seen this with, um, you know, uh, universities, school districts, um, other kinds of institutions are hiring, you know, essentially their own sort of COVID oversight bureaucracy, right? And so this, the rise of these kind of localized 
public health regimes, um, which I mean, are, you know, the very existence of which is, is absurd as an expression of, you know, any kind of meaningful, I mean, and so I've seen it in the university context that you have, like, I mean, within universities, you have these insanely draconian, um, you know, sort of enforcement regimes where people are, you know, um, you know, if you're eating a meal within a university building, you're, only allowed to eat for 15 minutes and then, you know, you have to put your mask up immediately. And they have these kind of, you know, basically um, work study, like student laborers who are sort of hired to go around making, you know, timing how long people eat and put their mask back up. Meanwhile, on the outside, you know, they walk, you walk half a block and you can go to a restaurant and not have to worry about any of that shit. Yeah. So it's like, it, it's, it's completely ludicrous. Um, you know, at, except, I mean, on one hand, as an expression of the, the, the true derangement of this class, but on the other hand, as, you know, a, yet another kind of um, jobs program. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's a wonderful combination of derangement, like total sort of social panic, but also crass cynicism. And this, this curb your enthusiasm, I'm really glad you brought it up because I had forgotten it, but as far as I remember, I saw that picture of the, the credits. Like they had two or three people working with the official job position, COVID data analyst. Like what the fuck sort of data do you have to have a data analyst like to on, on station for a particular like production? Uh, are you going to look at sort of total fatality ratios in sort of Wuhan, China in this month, uh, in this year, and then like get some sort of C3PO, like the, the uh, uh, probability of getting six is 3.333 repeating percent. So like, this is fine. It, it's just, and, and, and this picture of the credit section sparked something of a tempest in a teapot, like a minor Twitter controversy where like some of these sort of left-wing formerly sort of Bernie bro influencers went, oh, well, so you hate it because, so, so you really hate job creation when like our people are getting jobs. Is that it? Like some true ally of the working class you are when us workers are finally getting some well-paid positions. And it's like, the cynicism here is, is, is um, quite delicious, but it's also uh, combined with this sort of, you know, uh, frotting at the mouth, like you're killing like baby Einstein in the womb by sort of drinking from this water bottle two seconds too long. Like you've just genocided my grandparents. Um, and um, I guess like this is not the first time in ha history you've had this mix of sort of crass material interest and then this sort of almost religiosity around uh, performing the necessary sacrifices and so on. But, but what I find, what I find telling here though, is that I've seen at least one example of people just saying that even if COVID were to disappear tomorrow, like, you know, there's no more COVID at all. 
Like we should still have this health bureaucracy because COVID has taught us that, you know, being healthy is a good thing. So we're still going to have the flu. We're still going to have normal colds. There's no reason not to have like this entire uh, health infrastructure, this bureaucracy to, to manage everything. And I mean, well, this is kind of the problem with intermediation, though, is that someone has to bear the cost of all of this. And the cost is not only financial, because if you go to college, you have to pay for all of these fucking commissars. But it's also, you know, these people, these commissars, they're a pain in the ass. Like, even if you had to pay money to get rid of them, you would probably want to get rid of them. And if you have to pay money to keep them, you don't want to pay that money. And so I think that this sort of really ridiculous hatred and fear that these truckers in, in Canada have, have caused is actually like it's it's fairly understandable why why the fear is so so extreme. Because again, like there's a material conflict here. Um, a society that uh, spends lots of resources on keeping these like useless bureaucrats around is going to be a poorer society. And it's going to be a much more sort of high taxation society for um, the, uh, the truckers and the cops and so on. And, and I think that this is one of the things that Americans don't actually most Americans don't actually understand in relationship to wokeness. Like my impression is that a lot of Americans, especially if they're on the right, they actually think of America as this incredibly woke, progressive nation. Like, you know, in, 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 in the Nordic countries, we're still beating our wives and sort of burning homosexuals at the stake. But, oh man, super progressive, super woke America is sort of, driven by all these contradictions because like they just really believe in that, these progressive ideas and that's that's not really the case at all like if you look at something like gay marriage uh that thing what like gay marriage was made legal in sweden in 2009 not through like the supreme court sort of deciding it over the will of half the voters but just like everyone sort of agreed I bring this up because the when we're trying to understand why like COVID and all of these sort of managerial woke PMC conflicts are much more serious in the US, uh, what people need to understand is that in Europe and not in the US, um, the, the PMCs actually have a regimen, a tax regimen that's incredibly regressive and aimed at, um, you know, truckers and, you know, normal shots and so on. So a gallon of gas at the pump in Sweden costs something like $10. And most of the difference between the price in the US and in Sweden is because of taxes and fees. And these taxes and these fees are explicitly at this point going to fund all of these sort of bureaucracies. You know, the Green New Deal that people talk about in the US. Like, you know, you already have a tax structure that sort of gives all of these people jobs. They don't have to stand in the, the street corner with their hat in their hand and beg for table scraps from billionaires. 
And and so the U.S. Uh, like all of these, the creation of all of these sort of haphazard new bureaucracies come as a sort of almost a crisis response for all of these overproduced PMCs. In Europe, like gas taxes and so on are fairly um, controversial and PMCs often say, we should, you know, raise the price to $12 a gallon or something. And, and so we have two more dollars per gallon that we can give to, you know, energy consultants or whatever, equity consultants. But this was, yeah. the, this was the gilet jaune. I mean, this, you know, yeah. going back a number of years because, you know, it, I mean, it seems to me the gilet jaune phenomenon was sort of, uh, I mean, it was a, a sort of early manifestation of the kind of things we're now seeing with the, the you know, Canadian truckers. And, you know, it, it generated a pretty similar response. Although I'd say within the U.S., there was maybe a little bit of confusion. Like, I think, as I recall, the U.S. left was a little bit confused initially about sort of oh, yeah. onto it. Um, yeah. there, were even, there were even some sort of academic leftists who were, um, who were, you know, willing to kind of say some positive things about it. And I think, you know, things hadn't quite... Um, it hadn't quite fallen out in such a way that those people were disciplined yet. But, you know, my sense is, at least in, in the European context, it was very clear at the beginning that they were, um, you know, they were evil fascists and, uh, you know, yeah. needed to be needed to be crushed. Yeah, I mean, like the yellow vests, that sort of thing. When did it start? Like 2014, something like that. So... At that point, I would say that the response in Europe was also this sort of confusion because, I mean, we're, we're supposed to like all of these public demonstrations and so on, but, but we have this niggling feeling that, like, these people are enemies somehow. We can't really explain why, but there's something ominous about the Yellow Wests. And, and you know, since then, like, recently there was inspired by the Canadians, I think, some sort of like mass trucker protest in, in Helsinki in Finland. And you have like um, scuffles over fuel prices in Ireland right now. And in Sweden, you have this thing called Bremsløpruret, which literally translates to like the fuel insurgency, like the gas uh, rebellion. Um, who who complain about these high gas taxes. So but but the 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 real contrast in a way in terms of you know class contradictions is that in the US for for various reasons there's no way in hell to raise uh, gas prices to $10 a gallon without the country collapsing. Like you can't really offload these huge regressive taxes on the average American consumer, the economy, like it's too fragile. The, the country is too sort of like it, too large. There's not a lot of like fat left, not, not a lot of slack left in the system in terms of, you know, people living paycheck to paycheck. So you can't really just formalize the taxation of, of the shots. Uh, uh, like forcing them to pay all of these tithes in order to create bureaucracies. 
So you sort of have this almost slash and burn, you know, woke people showing up at a company's doorstep and saying, like, unless you give us so and so many sinecures, we're going to burn this company down. That stuff doesn't really happen in, in Europe. But this is not because Europeans are less progressive. In fact, uh, people mocked America up until fairly recently for being this Bible-thumping nation. Like, people were still in 2014 talking about civil unions. So, so again, in order to really understand what makes the U.S. sort of uniquely uh, polarized, uh, it's not necessarily that the U.S. has progressive ideals and, you know, Scandinavia doesn't because that's just insane. It's rather that Scandinavia has, uh, for sort of historical reasons, these already large like managerial systems that can then be retrofitted to fund like um, with some problems, but but still like some somewhat like stably fund. Um, all of these overproduced elites just by sort of saying, okay, well, we're going to raise the gas price from, you know, $9 to $10 per gallon. Uh, and we're going to use this to fund uh, uh, artists and, you know, uh, green consultants and so on. Uh, my friend who's in local politics, like you, you get cynical about this this stuff when you when you hear how the sausage is made, because the the Green Party in in his in his city, which is like a mid sized Swedish city of like you know, one hundred and eighty five thousand people, uh, like the Green Party is just saying that like the reason that you know we're doing so the environment is doing so poorly is that we're not using enough of the municipal budget to hire more consultants. Like that, that is the, the, the alpha and the omega, omega of, of like this managed PMC environmentalism, like hire people with college degrees that can't find jobs elsewhere. And there's a million different ways to secure funding through the state to hire these people in Sweden. There's not a million different ways in the US. Like that system is fairly underdeveloped comparably. And when you try to sort of push the envelope, you have all of these um, people, like, you know, angry parents saying that, well, you know, we have school boards and local elections. We're supposed to be like a federal republic with local democracy. You can't just centralize all this stuff. But they have to. And I mean, I think this, it relates also to a point about the the sort of weakness or limitations of the, <clears throat> the sort of right-wing backlash or right-wing or sort of centrist, you know, libertarian type you know, IDW type backlash yeah. that you have against some of this sort of ideological stuff. So, you know, th there are sort of localized versions of what you're talking about in the U.S. in that, you know, you have, um, you know, municipalities that are, um, you know, giving contracts to, you know, various kinds of consultants and, um, you know, funding and, you know, <clears throat> giving, um, you know, municipal funding to NGOs to take on certain kinds of 
projects. So, so there is something of a, I mean, on a, on a local level in certain cities and, and counties and so on. And then, you know, you can think about the, the anti-critical race theory movement in these terms, um, because, you know, essentially you have these, um, you know, you have these sort of university trained people who have, who have been able to carve out sort of sinecures in the, in the public school system, um, you know, doing this kind of ideological work. And then that, you know, they're also, um, you know, hiring outside agent, you know, sort of Robin DiAngelo style consultants and things like that. But, you know, a large part of the, uh, of that, you know, ideological work at this point is taking place in private industry. Right. Yeah. And it, you know, and, and because the right, so the right of course is focusing on school boards because, you know, public, I mean, and you know, there are various ironies to this because, you know, in some ways for a long time, the right basically approached this by trying to, you know, support, um, you know, so-called school choice, um, you know, basically subsidizing people to send their kids to um, parochial schools and private schools, or, you know, creating these kind of charter schools that were, you know, outside of the sort of ideological enforcement system of, you know, state and county school systems. And then, but more recently, it's interesting because it's, it's actually something of a different approach because they're, they're trying to drive a kind of ideological um, backlash that will allow for the, you know, taking back of these, um, of these school districts. But, you know, the, the overall um, impact that that's going to, you know, if they're actually concerned about these kind of ideological trends, the overall impact that that's going to have is pretty small, I would argue, because they don't have any way to approach how these trends are unfolding in like Fortune 500 companies, because in fact, their whole, you know, the, the, the American right has been, um, you know, defined by um, opposition to regulations on industry for, you know, much of the past 50 years. And so, you know, and, and this sort of also relates to the fact that, you know, now they have to kind of contend with this whole notion of woke capital, but they, they really lack any, um, any particularly meaningful way of, of thinking about that or responding to it. Um, Definitely. And, and that kind of only scratches the surface because there's even there's an even deeper contradiction here, which is that um, borrowing from Peter Tarchin here, and, and this is not necessarily a very original point for Tarchin, like people were saying uh, in the in the 19th century and you know fa- a thousand years before that that well if you have a lot of you know noble sons and not enough land you are going to be in for a really wild ride as these people start killing each other and sort of uh, um, plunging the country into civil war or launching crusades or whatever because uh, too many sons not enough land not a great combination um so, but but borrowing from from Tarchin and from you know the collected wisdom of the ancients, we can say that if you have a problem of elite overproduction, um, 
if you're just saying that, well, you know, these woke people have taken over all the prestige institutions and they've kicked out my heterosexual white son from Harvard. Like, okay, well, you know, your heterosexual white son who doesn't want to do what everyone else in his class is doing, which is to say, oh, well, you know, I'm a bisexual furry now and just put that on his, on his application form and not do anything else. Like, if he doesn't want to do that, he wants to uh, fight with honor, so to speak, and, and kick, out, kick out all of these furries from Harvard. Well, there's just going to be a bunch of overproduced furry elites who are going to try to, who are now on the outside and are going to fight really hard, tooth and nail, as it were, uh, in order to get back in. And at some point, they're probably going to succeed and your uh, white heterosexual non-furry son is going to be outside again and he's going to fight tooth and nail to get in. Like, the conspicuous silence of the American populist right on the issue of standardized testing, to me, is incredibly telling. Because you have all of these sort of huge sort of cook-offs, blow-ups in, in, in really rich counties like Fairfax or Ludon in Virginia. And, and um, this is like red meat to a lot of online right-wing culture warriors in the sense that, well, you know, you had this transsexual student who sort of uh, sexually assaulted another student in a bathroom and parents are really, really mad, like uh, Ludon country is in flames over this uh, tranny bathroom scandal. And then you realize that, well, you know, Ludon country is in flames. The tranny bathroom scandal is just one little piece of the front in a big, really big war. And the, re the real thing that made the uh, parents really, really mad that the woke people did was just say, we're going to abolish standardized testing because if we keep it intact, there's going to be a lot of Asians winning and there's going to be a lot of poor people and even, get this, some poor Asians. And they're all going to like contest for these limited spots on the lifeboat. And we frankly had enough. Like our kids are already like so precarious, like the the ability to stay inside the elite is already so sort of circumscribed that we need all the advantages we can get. Sorry, we're sort of kicking away the ladder. And, you know, the, the saviors from the right, once they swoop in in one of these situations, we say, oh, well, you know, vote for us. We're going to do all of these wonderful things to outlaw tranny bathrooms. And then if you're a parent and you ask, what about the standardized testing? It's, you know, the response you get is, oh, I, I understand that you're really mad about the tranny bathrooms. Don't worry. With us in power, you're never going to have to worry again. But what about the standardized testing? Yeah, you know, I, I, I feel you in your hatred for tranny bathrooms. Like, let's, let's join hands and fight this. And it's like, yeah, let's be real. The leadership class and like the, the people making up the leadership of the, the American right tend to be... Catholic converts, number one, and that's a whole other kettle of fish. Uh, but they also tend to be, you know, upper middle class uh, credentialist sort of email cost people. There's not a lot of truckers and plumbers around. 
And if you're an upper middle class, you know, you've gone to Harvard, your dad has gone to Harvard, his dad's granddad's granddaddy has also gone to Harvard. Uh, are you really interested in, like, you are just one faction fighting for the same sort of limited spots in the lifeboat. And if you pretend to, that there's some sort of, like, sacred principles at stake, like, whatever. No, there's not. Um, the woke people are not just degenerates. They are fairly driven and cynical. And, you know, they care about making sure their kids stay inside the elite. And uh, they tend to be a lot better at accomplishing that than the right who then get kicked out of these institutions and you know complain about all the sour grapes um and and obviously if you want to win the shots um who are going to be the 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 ones paying for increased intermediation in society like what do the shots care whether like someone in the based online right or the woke online left as his kids get into Harvard. It's, it's, it's all the same thing in the end, really. Yeah, and I mean, this... <clears throat> um, so it, it kind of makes me want to bring up a question about meritocracy, which, you know, it has been... I mean, that that's one area where... Um, you know, the, the way I kind of look at it now is that, um, you know, you, you have these kind of um, meritocratic, you know, th these ideologically meritocratic kind of um, sorting institutions, right, which are basically elite educational institutions, right? But interestingly, it's there that you have largely a kind of repudiation of the ideology of meritocracy, right? Yeah. That... Um, and so what's interesting is that these, these institutions that, you know, I mean, were, were essentially founded as, um, you know, with, with one specific function, which was to educate a certain elite that existed, you know, uh, through the sort of early 20th century, but then was, was sort of weakened and, um, you know, uh, lost a great deal of its position during the 20th century. Um, which, you know, is the sort of old, um, the old wasp or blue blood elite, right? So you have these institutions that were ideologically defined as sort of um, perpetuating and, and explicitly, you know, perpetuating this kind of custodian class of, of sort of genteel um, overseers who would, um, who would, um, you know, who, who, who understood themselves as the kind of guardians of, of society, right? And then that, you know, in various ways becomes discredited and problematic. And so gradually they become instead defined by their um, their meritocratic sorting function, right? So their, yeah. their, their supposed role in society is to select the best and the brightest from, from wherever they may come. And of course that was never really entirely true, but, and, you know, and, and occasionally they would acknowledge that, right? But, but nevertheless, for many years, they, they explicitly define themselves um, 
in this way, right? If we're thinking about Harvard and so on, um, as well as, you know, some of the sort of elite state university systems like University of California. Um, and then, you know, basically what happens more recently is that, you know, meritocracy itself, you know, this longstanding critique of meritocracy that you could find articulated by academics within these institutions, um, you know, which is that it's, it's a kind of, um, it's a it's a cover for you know the perpetuation of elite rule under a sort of friendly ideological guise but you know only recently has that become something that the institutions themselves seem to largely embrace right and they they instead increasingly define themselves as i mean through this kind of mission of equity right that that their function is not is no longer meritocratic, but it is to um, ensure um, ensure equity by whatever means necessary. And so, you know, this, um, I mean, and there are all these kind of weird, I mean, here's, a, here's an example of how this, the, you know, one way this ideology gets expressed is through the kind of revision of mission statements and the the names of new um, of new like deans and provosts and vice provosts who are brought in to kind of head up this new ideological project. And so my favorite one that I've seen is for a long time, you know, there was this uh, within the American university system, um, there was this concept of excellence, um, which, you know, I I've. Um, there's a very good book from the nineties called the university in ruins. And it focuses on the way that this concept of excellence is sort of this completely empty sort of floating signifier that, you know, denotes the, the fundamental hollowness of the whole project. Like that, that once it kind of gave up this, this project of kind of cultivation of elites, um, it, it instead had to come up with increasingly abstract and nonsensical ways of defining what it was doing, but excellence was probably the most significant of them. Now what you see is this incredible coinage of terms like inclusive excellence. Yeah. Um, which, you know, is sort of, to me, like that's the perfect expression of the whole thing. Um, and, and so, you know, this, um, that you have this, basically this elite that, you know, for, for a long time has defined itself ideologically in terms of meritocracy is now actually denouncing meritocracy and renouncing it as its mission. And, you know, so the, the scrapping of standardized tests is, is one expression of that. But, you know, this to me is one of the most interesting kind of aspects of the ideological evolution of these kind of elite institutions over the past few years. Yeah, and I, I wrote a essay for American Affairs together with a certain comrade Martin McMarty on, on this particular issue. Right. Because people look at these sort of um, incredibly hellish East Asian societies uh, where Japan, by comparison to like the real sort of villains here, Japan is this... Like it, it's basically the Mexico of East Asia, or whatever. Like you, you, you don't even care. You, you study a mere seven hours a day. Uh, you know, doing homework and, and stuff like that. 
and you you only have a minor sort of mental breakdown during your testing period and you know suicide is only the second leading cause of death for you know all people everywhere but but like these testing these societies with south korea hong kong uh, being the worst china parts of china are basically getting to that point too um like they are just nightmarish um the but but what they have we we, we look at their sort of insane uh, school regiments and we say oh well this is the confucian model but no the confucian model of education is kind of like the the classical model which is you're supposed to read a lot of um confucius uh, among other things mencius as well and and so on and you're supposed to be a uh, virtuous human being because if you're a virtuous human being you can be trained to be a water engineer a tax collector, a general, whatever, like you can learn on the job. But if you are not virtuous, like it doesn't really matter what what technical knowledge you have because you will muck it up anyway. Well, the sort of Prussian model of education is this, um, well, you're, you're supposed to cram. You're supposed to learn all of these technical details. We don't care about you as a person. Virtue has no place, like it, it can't be measured. And what the, the American school system has done in a way is that it's transitioned to a sort of weird, like hypertrophied version of this sort of classical education model. But, but with the sort of twist that your... Um, virtue in the system is something that's more or less innate like it's 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 a like you are born as a black trans woman or whatever and that means that you are virtuous and and you don't really sort of cultivate your virtue other than you sort of unlock your uh epigenetic trauma or whatever and then write a book about it uh so so it's not about sort of taking a a person that just kind of average or 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 sinful or bad and then um polishing or you know um sort of making the diamond sparkle it's it's more like you know you have this you're like a superhero you have this power from the start you only need to learn it um but the the thing here that's also kind of vague this is a problem that I think that a lot of the right doesn't really want to face, which is that given the problem of elite overproduction and, and you know, elite overproduction cannot be solved by sort of changing the, uh, um, the field in which competition takes place. Like, uh, I make this joke a lot, but it's not really a joke. Like, if Imagine if um, the U.S. college system, like if you wanted to get into Harvard, you have to be, you, you basically had to do the Spartan thing where like they give you a knife and you have to go out and kill helots. Like um, here, uh, record a snuff film of, of, of you torturing a homeless person to death. Like if that was the 
entrance exam to Harvard, there would be no lack of uh, uh, um, applicants. Like, you know, these upper middle class parents would just sort of uh, get HB, H1B visas for sort of Cinderella Luminos or North Korean tortures or whatever to help Junior along. Like, you can't really solve the problem of uh, competition forcing people to do really inhumane things by saying, well, we're going to switch the field of competition to something else. Like, it's still going to be inhumane because the, the, the lack of humanity is a function of, like, the immense pressure to actually succeed. But wokeness basically um, cultivating this sort of grievance virtue is probably less of an inhumane way to do things than quote unquote meritocracy of the South Korean model. Like South Korea is, it's a hellish society. Um, If you read um, Solzhenitsyn's sort of autobiographical novel, A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, where he sort of goes through a normal day in, in a Soviet gulag. Like that lazy, that lazy little rapscallion, he sleeps seven hours a night. And he even has time to sort of dicker with his bunk mates, maybe play some cards during the evening and so on. And, you know, they work 12 hours a day, but like a lot of it is work in quotation marks. If you are an eight-year-old Korean student, good luck getting seven hours of sleep. Like, this is a country where something like half of students are routinely sleep deprived. And by that, they mean like they sleep less than five hours a night. This is a country that has, you know, um, desks which are standing only so that sleep deprived students are like sort of disincentivized to fall asleep. Like, you can sort of Um, apply to stand at the standing desk because you haven't slept anything because your parents won't let you because you have, you know, homework to finish because if you fall asleep at your desk, you're going to get punished. So here's this humane solution. Uh, Do you really want that sort of society for your kids? Like, it's probably better to just sort of cut off your junk and become a tranny at that point. Like the, the, the level of um, misery, like suicidal ideation, the the sort of fertility park that permanent, like Irish potato famine levels, like South Korea is a society that has been destroyed by meritocracy in, in the sense that, sure, I mean, standardized testing, that's probably great and all, as long as it's not like completely inhuman, um, pressure to to get in, but if you have that pressure, like people really don't appreciate just how much of a sort of a a um, in a sense like wokeness might just be like these PMCs trying to find the the path of least pain to handle the like completely like insane sort of spillover effects of elite uh, um, overproduction.
Yeah, and in that sense, I mean, it's it's worth also distinguishing here. You know, the when people um, when people talk about meritocracy in the U.S., I mean, there's always been sort of a a very different sense of it, right? Because um, you know, it was never really. I mean, so there were certain institutional pathways that were essentially test driven, right? But Otherwise, you know, particularly within the the sort of most elite sphere of education, it was instead, you know, built around this idea of well-roundedness, right? That, that basically, you know, and this is why the thing that you had instead of sort of cram schools and sleep deprived children, you know, because they all had to pass this make or break series of tests, what, what you instead have is this kind of resume padding right, that begins when you're in, um, you know, and, and so like the, the sort of standard humor about this that's been around for many years is that, you know, you have these like five-year-olds who have to write a personal statement, you know, about their, about their growth. Yeah. And, um, you know, they have to already have like extracurricular activities, you yeah. know, to get into a sort of exclusive um, Manhattan kindergarten. And so, you know, instead what you've had is this kind of, you um, so, so the, 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 the way that Mer that American meritocracy, at least in the sort of highest realms of the elite has, has manifested itself is instead in this kind of absurd competition on the level of, um, you know, just kind of, I mean, basically, um, yeah, or, or, you know, you, you go and volunteer in um, Haiti or something yeah. when you're 16, God knows what you can actually do that would be remotely useful to anybody there, but you know, it's, it's a line on your resume and your college, and then you can write a college application essay about it. So, you know, so even before the kind of most recent um, evolution, you know, American meritocracy had this kind of strange quality. Um, and then, you know, what, what you had on the other hand was this kind of pathway, you know, for example, like one of the big controversies, on this front has been these um, schools in New York city that are, you know, free public schools, but that you have to test into. Right. And of course, you know, as has happened in other sorts of institutions that have this kind of admissions policy, you know, basically what that means is they're now 80% Asian, they're 80% first generation Asians. Right. Um, they're almost entirely, you know, um, children of, of Chinese and other immigrants from East Asia. And so, you know, the, the, and so this has become the problem that, that New York has to deal with, right? That these schools have to um, become uh, more, they have to become more representative and more driven by a sort of equity agenda and thus less meritocratic in this other, in this, in, in, a, in a way that would more resemble the South Korean way, right? Because it's a kind of purely numerical yeah. test-driven approach. And instead, they simply become more like this amorphous American meritocracy, which is about, um, you know, a, again, a kind of cultivation of virtue of a sort under another guise, although which which tends to take the form of just kind of, um, you know, of I mean, it's a combination of of sort of having innate characteristics that make yeah. you, as you brought up before, they make you embody um, virtue genetically or epigenetically, and on the other hand, um, you know, accumulating all of these um, these kind of experiences that supposedly 
make you into a sort of, um, you know, I mean, it, it used to be well-rounded. Now it's just basically make you into a kind of moral avatar of some sort. Yeah. Like that's, that's kind of a critical difference that in the sense that like the Confucian model in, in the context of sort of Imperial China, I mean, it's built to spec. Like the, the, the reasoning is that if you want sort of local magistrates, they have to be virtuous people. Like you can train them in technical knowledge, but they also have to train themselves. And you have a much better chance of them sort of not going rogue and doing a lot of awful stuff if they have a sort of internal gyroscope. Um, and, you know... <laughs> That's true. There's a reason you've had this model for, for almost 2,000 years. Um, but the U.S. version, it just trains elites to be sort of socially destructive in the sense that, um, like, you, you select for characters that basically uh, make... It's like pouring like sugar into to an engine or something. Like you, you that engine is going to break if you keep doing it. Um, so right, well, so it, it I mean, right. Part of what it selects for is I mean, and I saw this in in academia, um, you know, some years ago. But you know, it selects for a particular antisocial type. Yeah, who is on what? Who is? Um, extremely ruthless about pursuing position, a sort of pursuing and maintaining a position, you know, within the, within the power structure, but, you know, does so through this kind of, you know, th these sort of games of moral one-upmanship um, and, you know, and, and being responsive to this kind of ever evolving credo of, of sort of, you know, what, what the latest things are that make you, um, that, that, that make you sufficiently, um, you know, politically, um, awakened to, uh, to, to reality. And so, you know, I think obviously this was kind of a, a thing that you saw in academia. And I mean, I guess like something I wrote about last year, which, you know, the, the, one of the most interesting versions of this recently, which I think underlines your point is like within academia, basically the most, um, you know, in, in these, in the, the most elite institutions like Princeton or University of Chicago, you, know, you basically have these people who um, have, have made their way into these, um, you know, most, most prestigious departments, um, you know, might have like, you know, been hired as like an endowed chair at a remarkably young age and so on. And then what they start doing is writing these things about how like their whole discipline needs to be destroyed. Yeah. Um, and so this is, you know, <laughs> so so once they've ensconced themselves, you know, in the in the heart of the the most prestigious part of this field, anthropology or whatever, they actually write. I mean, literally, this guy who was kind of the the probably you know one of the top premier rising anthropologists writes this article called "Why um, the Case for Letting Anthropology Burn." Right. <laughs> and you've seen other people like this where. What they do once they're ensconced within this is basically write these um, these demands that the very thing that their um, their career is is taking place within be destroyed, and this this works as well, right? It actually enhances their status within the within the system. While I mean, and this I think relates to this like iron law of institutions idea, 
while at the same time, I mean, it explicitly, you know, the way these polemics are written explicitly discredit the very discipline that they're, um, that they're advancing their way through. So they, you know, they're, they're saying this discipline needs to be destroyed. It's evil, it's colonialist, it's racist, et cetera. Um, and so, and this, this is good for their own careers within it, but obviously it, it explicitly erodes the status of the institution. Oh, yeah. working I mean, with. It, it, in some ways, it's just making a virtue out of necessity because, I mean, these, these institutions are being destroyed and, and it's not down to someone writing a think piece. It's Absolutely. just like these sort yeah. of secular trends. Absolutely, so, yeah. Like if you get in, your job is to kick away the ladder and sort of get to the lifeboat as quickly as possible. But but obviously you're not fighting to preserve anthropology or or anything else because like the the ship is sinking in a way, and and there's really nothing anyone can do about it. Like what I in my sort of involvement in politics, like I. I tend to take the line that, you know, the only real way to solve a, a crisis of elite overproduction, well, I guess there's two. There's one which is, has happened, you know, a couple of times throughout history and is not looking terribly likely to happen again anytime soon, is massive economic expansion. So something like, you know, the post-war years where... People go from, you know, um, living in sh corrugated tin shacks to sort of living in apartments with central heating and air conditioning and flush toilets. Like if we have that sort of expansion because we discover unobtainium or something, yeah, you know, uh, this this problem of elite overproduction is going to look pretty quaint because they're, everyone's going to be have their own Star Trek replicators. That's alternative number one again i don't think it's terribly like the deus ex machina has not yet appeared I, I i'll just put it that way um the other way is if i'm be to put it sort of bluntly is some form of mass casualty event it could be you know a plague it could be famine it could be civil conflict. It could be some other sort of like armed conflict. But generally, um, when you have these problems, that's how they take care of themselves eventually. Um, the, the, the right wing hope is just that, well, okay, you have this overcrowded elite, but what if we, the losers of the competition, just sort of magic our way into the winning spot? and make the other people who are fairly or incredibly ruthless, make them the losers. That way, there will be no reason to fight anymore. Well, actually, no. You already know that these people are ruthless. If you put them, uh, if you kick them out of the lifeboat, they are going to be extra ruthless when they try to get back in. And so, I mean, my, my general... Um, attitude i would say it's just that like if you if you have any sort of political ambition trying to cram every member of the overproduced intelligentsia into some lifeboat or building new ones or wishing for the stars to sort of send like some magic like rabbit out of a hat to to solve this that's not going to really happen like 
this this process of intermediation, which is a process of like parasites, essentially, you know, trying to take care of themselves. Like, you know, a a a tick doesn't really have a choice; it has to suck blood, otherwise, it's going to starve to death. So, like, it's nothing personal when when the tick bites you and sucks your blood. But again, it's not really anything personal when you remove it either. Like these structures and and people like them are going to be placed under an ever growing burden as the forces of intermediation sort of expand. And like, if you want to be on the winning side of that conflict, you really have to ask yourself whether sort of endless parasitism on a, constantly sort of shrinking economic base is sustainable. If you think it is, by all means, join the DSA and, you know, fight the good fight. But if you think that the parasites will eventually lose because, you know, sort of political economic forces of gravity, I mean, you really have to throw your lot in with the truckers in a way. I mean, that's that's at least the conclusion I come to and sort of our party here in Sweden comes to. Um, because what the left has done for so long is to pretend that there really isn't any sort of conflict between blue collar people and the, like the HR department, but with the, um, fracas in, in Ottawa and stuff like the school board, um, controversies and, and even with the jello vests and similar like explosion of working class anger, like the left is sort of transitioning away from trying to mystify the stakes and just openly saying it's it's them, meaning the workers or us, like pick one. And um, I think that there will be a lot of people in the days ahead who will take take the left up on that offer. Uh, they will pick one out of these two. And I mean, uh, here's a another point which I guess we haven't gotten to, but you know, relates back to my episode with Fabio Vigi, which is, you know, on the other hand, we also have to think about, um, you know, the role of sort of finance capital, and this, you know, th- this kind of ballooning realm of fictitious capital um, that has sort of been bailed out again and again by um, quantitative easing since 2008. And so, you know, one thing that's been interesting to see is, you know, you have this kind of, um, I mean, basically since 2008, um, it it was, you know, this kind of resurgent left, you know, essentially was was in the scheme of things really just a kind of um, Keynesian, you know, advocate advocacy of Keynesian stimulus against austerity, right? And, um, but but the the main form that the actual stimulus that we saw took was sort of bailing out these um, enormous financial entities, right, and allowing them to continue. Um, to to continue, I mean, speaking of parasite, you know, sort of parasitizing the yeah. the real economy in various ways, and then you know, basically, I mean, it's interesting. There's this book that came out recently, which um, has been 
has been reviewed, you know, so, I mean, without getting too much into this, a whole other thing we could discuss here is inflation, right? And there's this book, you know, that that came out recently from a sort of mainstream um, business journalist that's about one of the one of the people within the Federal Reserve System in the U.S. who sort of dissented from the quantitative easing consensus, right, um, during the past uh, 13, 14 years. And, you know, basically he argued that, um, you know, because the, the usual um, line on the sort of Keynesian side was, well, you know, supposedly this is going to cause inflation. Um, but basically his argument, but but do you see prices going up? Well, no. So obviously that's that's fake. And then this kind of morphs into this modern monetary theory thing, right, which is Oh, sort yeah, of, um, which, which is the uh, the favored uh, doctrine of the sort of AOC crowd, and oh yeah, is also you know very much aligned with this idea that you see the kind of post Bernie left people saying like we just need indefinite lockdown until there's zero COVID yeah, and monetary dollar right. coin, bro. <laughs> Modern monetary theory shows us that we can shut down the economy completely and just pay everyone to stay at home. In any case, um. But I mean, so there are a lot of threads to this, but, you know, basically the, the notion, if you kind of combine all of this is that, you know, you have this, this sort of Keynesian project of this constant injection of stimulus, which was basically the, the um, what, you know, what the left was advocating for, right? But the main effect of it is to kind of keep these um, huge, you know, financial entities afloat <clears throat> right. And then at least in Fabio's argument, all of this was kind of coming to a head um, in the in the months leading up to COVID. And so, you know, in a sense, you can think of lockdown as, you know, one of its functions is as a sort of ersatz austerity. Right. Because it 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 yeah. temporarily um, kind of um, delays the inflationary effects of these policies um, by shutting down large portions of the real economy, right? Yeah. And so, you know, this there, there's a lot to this, but, you know, the other thing I find interesting here is I think it sheds a lot of, you know, you brought up the whole Green New Deal concept. By the way, another thing I've found really fascinating, which we don't need to get into, which I think, which I've tweeted about a bit is like, it's very bizarre to me that the Green New Deal is something people talk about in Europe. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, I mean, the New Deal, I just, I, I don't get how, you know, I guess the New Deal just becomes memefied, but, um, but that's a whole other thing. But, you know, so what's interesting to me is that, you know, we have all this agitation for the Green New Deal, which ostensibly is framed as this kind of, you know, mega Keynesian project, right, which is supposed to be about um, creating uh, so-called green jobs, right? Um and, you know, so ostensibly, you know, what, what's imagined here is some kind of, you know, some form of reindustrialization in the, in the mode of, um, you know, creating big solar panel plants and things like that, right? Um, now, we don't need to get into the, the sort of critiques of that whole model, but what does interest me is the way that COVID itself functions as, as a kind of, I mean, whatever the Green New Deal was sort of ideologically framed as prior to that, like I'd say COVID was actually the one that we got, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and in some sense, it, it sort of provides a model for future 
versions of it down the road. If we can imagine that, you know, this, um, this is, you know, a sort of as, as is, has been explicitly brought up is sort of a prototype of potential, you know, climate lockdowns. Um, you know, it oh, yeah. also allows for you to do all sorts of things in terms of, you know, well, how do you deal with the truckers in the end? Well, I mean, there are a few ways. One of them is to, um, to automate their, you know, to sort of autom automate their jobs out of existence, I suppose, and make them part of big tech. But, you know, another is, is through some sort of enforcement of a, a climate lockdown in the future. And then, you know, what does all this add up to? Well, it adds up to, again, further pretexts for this kind of um, inflationary project, which keeps, um, which keeps uh, finance capital sort of artificially inflated while at the same time kind of attenuating the real economy um, and so, and, and also, um, you know, creating more, um, you know, allowing for further proliferation of, I mean, and so the real jobs program of the Green New Deal is of course, um, you know, the jobs program of creating intermediary, you yeah. know, sort of energy consultants or, um, you know, uh, it, I mean, similar to what I was saying about how everyone has their own um, COVID bureaucracy, right? There's also, you see a similar thing with, everyone can have their own sort of climate bureaucracy or green bureaucracy. <clears throat> and so, I don't know, I mean, I guess, you know, this this is covering a lot of ground, but, you know, if there's kind of a larger shift underway, one way to look at it is towards this kind of, um, you know, and... and um, you know, the other question is how you put off the kind of conflagration that you were describing, right, as the end point of this elite overproduction period. And, you know, the the kind of coercive measures that are enabled by the kind of lockdown model um, and, you know, just the the, um, you know, the emergence of things like vaccine passports and so on, like, you know, these these do present a model of social control that can then be redeployed in, in various ways in the future. Yeah, and, and I think that uh, in order to, to begin addressing this, I, I, I should sort of say one thing regarding like why the Green New Deal is a thing in Europe. Um, like I tend to think of this like using sort of almost so, sort of soft drinks as an example, because there's actually like, if you buy a soft drink in Sweden, there's like three different tiers, I suppose. Like there's something like Cola or Fanta or Sprite or whatever, where it's, you know, licensed production. So you have this recipe, it comes from the United States, but it's then produced over here, uh, sold in cans with, you know, Swedish language text on them and so on. And so there's, there's, some sort of assembly, some sort of adaption to local circumstances going on. But then you have like these, like say imported Snapple, uh, which is, you know, just a bottle of Snapple from the US, but then the importer generally tends to put some sort of like um, label on top of the American label with like this table of contents in Swedish or whatever. Like in my time, like in the last 10 years, the Swedish left has essentially gone from first having this sort of domestic production of ideology with inputs from the US to sort of, oh, well, here are the newest ideas from the US and in, in Swedish conditions, it means this. So like trans 
translating, you know, the newest sort of terms or whatever to, to like more local conditions. But now uh, these days, it's just, here's a bottle of Snapple. Here you go. Like the new deal, like there's no longer any sort of domestic um, intellectual capacity whatsoever, not even to sort of translate the table of contents. It's just given to you as is in a way. But, but one of the reasons that this has happened is because the stakes of politics are so low. So when you have these George Floyd protests sort of uh, filling the uh, minds of, of PMCs with fire worldwide, like in Sweden, in, in Uppsala, where I live, uh, birthplace of Carl Linnaeus, obviously we have a bunch of statues to Carl Linnaeus um, because he's sort of like a very famous figure, both domestically and, and internationally. Uh, what, what our activists Plus did here is they started an online poll saying, you know, Linnaeus was a racist. Here's an online poll saying that we should tear down the statues. And then they got like 200 names or whatever. And then they said, oh, sorry, we lack democratic support for vandalizing statues, so we're not going to do it. But they don't have to because all of them are sort of taken care of by this large like state patronage system. Uh, and so like they don't need to they don't need to care about the Green New Deal, because in reality, what sort of activism is here is saying we should increase regressive taxes on shuds make them pay more for something they can't do without, which is gas. And then, you know, uh, the Pope needs more tithes to, to build this cathedral or whatever. So the peasants just have to go along with it. Like that's, that's politics in Europe. And so um, to sort of answer your question, like you, you sort of see this direct importation because people have their own, like they, they're already being taken care of in a way that like in the US, this represents a real sort of, we have to build these institutions, but. Um, Sorry, it's the American entrepreneurial uh, spirit, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but here it's like, oh yeah. Um, like we've had a bunch of stuff like this. We had a Mormon panic in the 19th century in Sweden, uh, which is kind of like, was just a hobby to people because there's no Mormons in Sweden, obviously. Um, so, so it's kind of something like that. But, but the larger picture here is that in Europe, I don't think you're gonna see a lot of like climate lockdowns until you start seeing significant pushbacks against these sort of regressive taxes on the peasantry to fund like the new cathedral in Rome or whatever, which is like the, the um, you know, Macron essentially said that because these shots living in the countryside are so bad, we're gonna make diesel much more expensive. Uh, and then we're gonna use the proceeds to pay for people in Paris. And uh, France just exploded at that because they didn't like it. And you see similar explosions of lesser intensity in Sweden, Finland, and so on. I think that as, as the economy gets more like sort of goes on the skids, uh, you will see much more fighting over that. And at that point, I think that 
like Swedish activists will become a lot more radicalized in order to sort of defend their prerogatives. But, but we're already seeing the weakness of trying to say institute like lockdowns, sort of this administrative tyranny when you don't have the cops on side. Like there's like the email class people have no solutions to the fact that um, the sort of commanding heights of the economy or the commanding lows or whatever, like the sort of things that need to work in order for uh, people to not starve to death within six weeks, all of them are de facto controlled by, uh, you know, the shots themselves. And given our sort of really fragile infrastructure systems, um, I don't know if you know, there's this sort of meme about Chinese history, which is like you have this inconsequential border skirmish between random nobody and random nobody. Uh, and, you know, they fought for a couple of days and then went home. 20 million people died. Like the it's often commented on that Chinese history, in terms of casualty numbers, like wars are just incredibly brutal. But the reason they're incredibly brutal is not because, you know, the Chinaman is, lacks honor or something like that. It's just that China very early on developed this uh, very intricate, very advanced and very fragile um, system for feeding its population dependent on huge public works in like water engineering. And so the problem with conflicts, like even insignificant border conflicts is that, you know, dams and so on tend to be destroyed. If the dams are destroyed, then you get like these 20 million casualties from starvation rather than, you know, combat fatalities. The problem with like the US today is that it's basically Imperial China times one million. Like, you know, if you don't have enough spare parts for trucks, the entire logistic system starts sort of slowing down, meaning that the, the factories producing spare parts for trucks can't get the inputs they need, meaning there will be even less spare parts for trucks and so on in a vicious cycle. And so, like, I think that the, the, the PMCs will try to ride this tiger for as long as they can't, can, but everything we've seen illustrates that, well, they don't really know how to do it. Even kind of this playful action in, in, in Canada, which is not meant to really hurt anyone or, you know, like, we're going to do like Mao Zedong, the great steersman. We're going to uh, unite the countryside and isolate the towns. Like that's not what any of these truckers are about right now. But even so, like the, 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 the balance of power is all out of whack. And the, the ability to keep a lid on the sort of morbid effects in the economy, or like everyone is sort of noticing that, there's empty shelves in, in parts of the U.S. Um, 
you have these in, insane cost increases for basic goods year over year. You have inflation that is at a level higher than it's ever been before in my lifetime. And 2022 is going to be a worse year for inflation than 2021. Like everyone in the know sort of agrees on that point. So I think that like putting all of this together, um, chances are in fact that like they're not going to be able to do it. They're not going to be able to sort of balance all of these contradictions, even for, you know, even in the midterm. I don't think that you can balance these contradictions more than a couple of years before the wheels really start coming off the wagon. Like 9% inflation, that's not normal. Like you have to be a really sort of frog who loves boiling pots uh, in order to say, well, you know, 9% inflation, when's that ever sort of uh, uh, been augured in further, like, you know, crisis? Oh, you know, 9 inflation, that's just an ordinary Tuesday. No, it's not. 9% inflation, that's a really big deal. And the, like, the US... It's, it's, just, yeah. it's just treats, come on. It's uh... Oh, yeah, it's just <laughs> treats, man. <laughs> And then like half a month or like half a year later, people are complaining about Starbucks, miserable capitalists raising prices for their double mocha lattes or whatever. Um, so, so like, again, there could be some sort of famine or we could discover unobtainium or, there, uh, or, you know, a new super bat virus or whatever could kill half of the world's population. And at that point, our problems will be quite different. But if none of that happens, and if we're left to sort of trust in the PMCs, uh, balancing the economy and, you know, competing interests, then I think that, you know, the U.S. is definitely heading for uh, what the Chinese... Uh, would call interesting times. And where do you see the, um, I mean, and this could be in the US and more broadly, I mean, you've written some about um, how the right, you know, is is in some sense sort of positioned to capitalize on, you know, these kind of uh, smoldering discontents <clears throat> as manifested by the truckers, for example, but you know, that there are also, I mean, we've, we've touched on this a bit, but there are also ways that at least the sort of um, existing political structures on the right are, um, you know, have various mechanisms in place that, that also will work against that. Yes, I think that some parts of the right, and, and it's a sort of heterogeneous co coalition, but, but I would say that, like, some parts, maybe even the majority of, like, you know, the, the sort of elite right. We're not talking about sort of local politicians or, you know, average Republican voters in sort of rural Texas or whatever, but like the quote unquote elite. Um, I'm getting real sort of deja vu feelings thinking back to the good old days of left populism in the sense that the left saw, you know, smoldering discontent and said, well, we can just use these 
stupid tin soldiers to fight our battles for us. Like all of these flyover Americans or, you know, Northern Wall um, Brits, they're going to fight and die for, you know, creating more sinecures in London. And then it turns out that, no, actually, these are uh, uh, human beings, political agents with their own priorities. And if you don't talk to them, uh, they're not going to give you the time of the day. In general, I think that the, the sort of the right is prone to papering over all of the material and class contradictions that are actually sort of tearing through American society today by only focusing on parts of the culture war. Like they look at uh, Fairfax country or whatever, and they go, oh, well, they're mad about trannies. And then, you know, they retcon out the problem where the parents say, actually, we're much more mad about standardized testing. So there's stats, but but also... And we could also, I mean, it's probably worth thinking about, you know, and I'm not a huge expert, but I do um, know people there and follow it somewhat. But the UK is illustrative here, perhaps, in that, you know, what you saw with the, the, um, I mean, you know, you described this period sort of between when the Tories win in late 2019 and the lockdowns when basically the, the main activity of the left is just kind of this, you know, vituperative fury against the horrible Northern working class racists who voted for, you know, who, who spurned their, um, you know, generous, uh, um, you know, program on offer in the Corbyn uh, election manifesto and instead voted for the, you know, had first voted for Brexit and now voted for the Tories. So, you know, you had that like pretty, I mean, really remarkable realignment, you know, perhaps more remarkable than anything that's happened in the U.S. of, you know, these kind of northern, you know, labor heartland districts to the conservative party. Um, but it does seem that you know, in various ways, the, um, I, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the sort of polls look like and so on, but I did see somebody posting <clears throat> the other day that, you know, most of those, in most of those regions that, you know, dramatically flipped to the Tories in 2019, you know, a significant number of people are, are, will say they will not vote for the Tories again. Um, I mean, and- the, the- yeah, go ahead. And, you know, and and obviously I think um, the sort of COVID, um, you know, basically Johnson's general acquiescence to a lot of um, COVID policies is, is one part of that story. Yeah, exactly. And, and the problem is I actually, before the election 2019, I was at some sort of conference and I talked to a guy um, from the Tory party who, who was visiting Sweden for some reason. And, you know, we got into a conversation because it kind of looked like um, the working class could maybe swing for, for uh, Boris Johnson. Like nobody predicted the sort of landslide victory that he, he would get, like the total sort of destruction of the, the red wall. But, but like the guy said that, it's it's a new it's a new political moment they're living in, but he was sort of uncomfortable with it, and and I was you know I naively said, I mean look, 
the labor is just handing you all of these working class votes. Isn't that like the best thing ever in politics when you just handed votes for free? But then he said, yeah, but like, we don't know how to be a workers party and we probably don't want to be one either. Like it, I would as a Tory actually be happier if labor did their job, if they stopped alienating the working class and there was, you know, uh, order rather than disorder under the habits. He didn't get his wish, at least then, but but like the main enemy of the, the right sort of dom- getting a dominant position within the working class is not coming from Keir Starmer or the, the Labour Party. It's coming from factions within the Tory party who essentially say, like, why are we even trying to appeal to these workers anyway? Like, that's not what we're about. Like, come on, like, let's have some class politics here, people, for the class we're supposed to be on side for. And so, you know, you, you have that in massive internal contradiction. And then on, on the part of the people who are generally considered, quote, unquote, based in the right, especially in the American right, you just have this. Uh, like people are just so naive about what the stakes are. Like we're gonna, we're gonna abolish wokeness. Like the Supreme Court is gonna uh, um, overturn Roe versus Wade. We're gonna get a national ban on abortion any day now, comrades. Like we're winning, and it's like, oh boy. Do you not understand the nature of these sorts of conflicts? And that's a rhetoric, rhetorical question I'm coming to realize because the answer in most cases is no. Um, like, if you, if you think about abortion here and, and people are locked into this talk about like, when does life begin at conception or like, what's the value of a human life? Like, uh, I tend to sympathize with like a lot of the arguments on the pro-life side, but I can't help but notice the fact that uh, every animal on planet Earth is sort of subject to, you know, a carrying capacity set by the environment. And so if you're an animal in the forest or whatever, like you're going to have five or six hatchlings or whatever, and five of them are going to die. And so you have like one owl or whatever at the end. But, you know, nature imposes this brutal winnowing um, that's just like natural selection. And this was the case for most of human history. Like people weren't having abortions in 2000 BC, even though, you know, the, the total human population wasn't necessarily growing at all year over year. Like, you know, you had five kids and four of them died. And the, the interesting thing, the reason I bring up the abortion issue is just that a lot of these based right-wing people have this almost disnified version of like they, they sort of internalize the liberal promise of, you know, a perfect harmonious society if we can just sort of get rid of the bad people, even more than the most radical liberals themselves. Like if you want to go back to traditional society, 
traditional society up until you know the post-war period meant that for most people like having kids die from starvation was just something like fairly fairly normal and and rather than you know birth control and abortion kids dying was the way we kept the population from sort of spiraling out of control and so you you see these people saying well we're going to remove population control by these experts and then question mark question mark question mark like it's kind of like the underpants gnomes like where you collect underpants and then you know there's a sort of intermediate stage nobody's really sure what happens once you've collected the underpants but the end result is that everyone gets rich well you know uh, ban abortion abolish wokeness uh, get meritocracy back in our schools question mark question mark question mark we're going to get back to, you know, the post-war era or something. Like, that era is never coming back. Um, right, and in that sense, you know, it's, <laughs> it's and, it, you know, basically, and this is something that's been true for as long as I can remember, that you have, you know, throughout American politics going back to the 90s, you know, you have this bifurcated nostalgia for the sort of trente glorieuse, but... You know, on the on the right, it's nostalgia for the sort of Norman Rockwell, you know, um, uh, sort of suburban, um, you know, family lifestyle. And on the left, it's for the Keynesian, you know, sort of post-war economic program. And, um, you know, so and, and it's really I mean, and this, I guess, goes to a question about you know, um, how this crisis might relate to the last one. I mean, so, you know, both of these modes of politics are on one hand, um, you know, based on this kind of selective remembering where yeah. you, you idealize one, one aspect of the totality that existed at the time and then, you know, fail to account for the aspects of it that, that are actually seemingly opposed to the thing that you, um, you claim to stand for. And then on the other hand, there's also just this refusal to, I mean, you know, still nobody knows how to think about the, um, what happens in the seventies and, you know, that moment of crisis. Um, like I, I yeah. still, I don't think anybody has, a, I mean, there's a great deal of weird kind of nostalgia for that too, in aesthetic terms, you know, people love uh, watching or maybe not as much now, but there was kind of a vogue for, you know, movies about like New York in the 70s when there was the blackout and, you know, everything was just decaying and falling apart. There was that kind of um, that kind of, uh, you know, decay porn that was, you know, based on this, again, kind of selective remembering of that period. And then yeah, but but there's no, um, you know, that's the moment that cuts us off from this thing that, I mean, whether it's the Green New Deal or the sort of based right sharing memes of, you know, this is what they took from you. It all, it all goes back to this kind of trauma yeah. of, you know, we had 30 good years and then that was all over because we had a fucking crisis that, <laughs> that blew up that entire system. And it was, you know, inflation and, 
um, stagflation and so on. And it's like, you know, nobody really has a, a, a message other than return to the part of it that we liked. Yeah. I mean, and this is this is such a failure of imagination and a failure of like critical thinking, because uh, on the topic of this is what they took from you. Like you see a lot of these people saying like there's this pro natalist movement, which is in a way just a stupid sort of, oh, well, the left is anti-natalist. So that means the correct response is to be pro natalist. And people say like you should have. 3.5 kids or whatever like that's that's trad four kids five kids like this is doing your patriotic duty and making sure that uh, future america is going to be a land of milk and honey or whatever like the problem here is just that um if people wanted us to have like four kids and then have you know 18th century um like infant mortality like that's fine like you're gonna have four kids and two or three of them are gonna die before they're 10 and uh you know you're gonna have some population growth but not too much but if you have like modern medicine you know like 21st century info infant mortality like if you have three kids each couple has three kids like the total fertility rate is at free, free live birth per, per woman. Like in a period, um, you know, the US has been, been an independent country for, you know, 250 years. Let's say the US in some form has existed for 300 years. In another 300 years with that sort of fertility rate, there's going to be like 9 billion Americans. That's how sort of... Um, um what's the word i'm looking for um that's how uh, um compound interest works like um what's the word for figures like you know they you you have one uh, uh, a grain of rice on the first chess uh, uh square and then two and then four like it's it's something something growth there's a term for it um geometric uh, no, not geometric, the opposite of geometric. <clears throat> Sorry, exponential? Exponential, exactly. Yeah, like yeah. if you have an exponential growth, um, yeah. you, like, you know, it takes a long time to go from, you know, 10 million to 300 million, but it takes a fairly short time to go from 300 million to 9 billion. And obviously there's not going to be 9 billion Americans. And they're all going to live in, you know, white picket fence suburbs or whatever. Like, that's not going to happen. Um, Nine billion people crammed into continental America would make uh, a Warhammer 40K hive world look like a sort of underdeveloped, you know, suburb or something. Uh, so, again, I'm not making an ideological point here. Like, I'm just making a sort of point of basic, like, mathematics. Like, if you expect people to have, you know, three kids or whatever um, per woman, and then you don't want them to sort of die from easily treatable infections or whatever, and you don't want to live in a Warhammer 40k hive city, like, something's got to give. But people just say, oh, well, I don't want to think that far. 
and again, like this is not this is not serious in in any way, shape, or form. Like if you're if you can sort of admit that, well, uh, exponential population growth is you know leads to the population growing exponentially, which is not you know a very um, hard like you don't have to be a genius to realize that uh, and you're still stuck in this nostalgia this aesthetic like it just means that you you basically don't you don't have any plan for winning like you are basically already prefiguring your own irrelevance and loss and there's a lot of that um going on with like i used to think that was just a leftist trait like coming up with ideologies that are designed to lose because if they win like god forbid it would be a catastrophe like a human tragedy but you know the right is probably even more guilty of that today in, in many ways like this pronatalism um and this like refusal to sort of grapple with the implications of, of all of these transformations that have taken place. Like someone even, I, I saw an example of someone citing the early Puritans as a, like, a good sort of role model because early Puritan families in the US had like 10 kids or whatever. Well, yeah, but they also had 10 kids because they inhabited a continent that had been, you know, 98% depopulated by a sort of freak accident of geography, like the Colombian exchange uh, sort of being like the worst depopulation event in like at least in a sort of limited area in human history like one of the worst in probably like the history of the planet like 98 percent in some populations just dropping dead i mean there's not we're not really living in that world today like if 98 percent of them of the current american population died then maybe like 10 kids would be a really good thing and all of them would get into Harvard or whatever but like the refusal to sort of look reality in the face is actually quite jarring um and you know it, it also plays out in in like people cite this uh, online rights, um, like all of these anonymous accounts, uh, like raw egg nationalism, bronze age pills, blah, blah, blah. It's like, this is the new, like completely, uh, um, you know, dynamic sort of vitalist political movement. But there's not really a political movement here at all. There, there's no real there, there in a way. Uh, well, in a sense, it's a, I mean, one way to, th I would think about it is it's, a, you know, they, they've sort of cleverly repackaged a kind of lifestyle politics that, yeah. um, I mean, there was an article about this the other day that, um, you know, like the whole thing of, um, I don't know, uh, seed oils and whatever, I'm not gonna, I, I don't have a clear <laughs> opinion on, you know, whether what people say about seed oils is correct or not, but like, you know, this, um, you know, if you go back 20 years, like there are all these kind of left coded modes of lifestyle politics um, 
that have now kind of found a second life among these kind of um, right-wing sort of ideological entrepreneurs, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of amazing in a way that people people are just, like their capacity for credulousness never ceases to amaze because you have um, a lot of people going, wow, there's this new lifestyle guru teaching that like by meditating and eating right, you can sort of transcend this fallen society. Well, this is terribly exciting. I'm sure this has never happened in history before. And it's like, well, actually it has. Um, I tend to think of, you know, someone like Bronze Age Parvart, and this is not necessarily like an insult or anything. It's just sort of a uh, um, diagnosis, so to speak. Like someone like Bath is essentially just a modern day Dr. Mesmer in, in that he's, he's this sort of wacky foreigner coming to like pre-revolutionary France. He has all of these cool ideas about animal magnetism and like magnetism being this uh, invisible force that um, flows through every living being and that um, imbalances in magnetic flows is actually like the real um, sort of one size fits all explanation to uh, like people feeling bad and being neurotic and so on. And, you know, Paris at that time, because it's in a pre-revolutionary situation, is just going bananas for any sort of weird esoteric theory, like of any stripe. And so Dr. Mesmer sort of sells his books. He gets a lot of acolytes. They start going, well, what if animal magnetism could apply to political regimes as well? Like, what if uh, mesmerism is actually this revolutionary political ideology? And uh, just like BAP is doing today, Mesmer says, you know, I can't handle you political cretins anymore. Like, I only care about getting paid and, you know, uh, going on vacation to weird places. And then sort of Mesmer pieces out. Um, France has its revolution and, you know, mesmerism is kind of completely forgotten, though it was like this huge thing at one point. Um, like it's, it's this weird lifestyle, aesthetic um, theory of the universe combination, Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. Um, and, you know, these things occur in history at like specific intervals. So, so there's nothing new under the sun here. And, and again, this is kind of a failure of imagination and sort of historical grounding that people, people look at this and go, holy crap, like the implications of this are completely unknown because it's never happened before. Um, and so again, I think you will see like this entire world of online radicals um, it's all going to be, uh, to quote Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, it's all going to be dust in the wind. Um, because it's, it's just so specific. It's even specific to a particular platform, which is Twitter. Like, you don't see a lot of these people on Facebook because, like, the, the format of Facebook and the user base of Facebook is completely incompatible with raw egg nationalism. 
And so it's dependent on this particular moment in time, this particular platform with its like specific technical limitations and features. And uh, like it's, it's, it's just sort of a series of interconnected fandoms. And so, so it, it's, it has its own contradictions. And the legacy right, I mean, it's stuck in its... its I don't mean to disparage these people at all because I have nothing against them, but but you so rarely see um, this sort of serious intellectual curiosity um, from conservatives regarding sort of the implications of their own positions when sort of taken as far as they can be taken. Um, it's just, oh, well, you know, the courts are going to give us a win in Roe versus Wade, and then then we're going to uh, ban abortion in California because it's wrong. And it's like, well, how are you going to get from A to B? Like, how are you going to how, how are you going to ban abortion in California without fighting some sort of civil war like for real? Oh, well, we didn't think of that, but, you know, at least we have heart. Yeah, but politics is about a lot more than heart. It's, it's about implementation. It's the art of the possible, so to speak. And, and I mean, uh, yeah. And uh, I mean, maybe to wrap things up, um, <laughs> you know, I, I guess another to, to bring up um, a point you've made is, that you know you're kind of seeing um a, you're having a certain amount of deja vu with the the sort of populist right in terms of what the pot this kind of cycle of the populist left in the past 10 years um i mean another thing that i so so i guess that the the only way in which all of the the election fraud kind of response to 2020 um you know, whatever. I'm not. I wasn't. I was never interested in kind of litigating the details of it, and still am not. But um, it it did seem to infuse this kind of um, and particularly kind of post January sixth. I guess that you know, there's kind of this like beautiful loserism of the left that you know I, was manifested recently in oh well, you know, Bernie would have won if they hadn't cheat if the DNC hadn't cheated him things like that, right? And so it, it does seem to me there's kind of a, um, a way in which, you know, post-Trump in particular, the populist right, it, you know, at least in the US, maybe more broadly, can kind of become infected with this, um, this beautiful loserism, right? Where, yeah. where because you, you know, you've been cheated out of your rightful place within the political system. And so, you know, you, you sort of stand outside it, morally judging it for for that. Um, and, you know, this is obviously, as anybody who's followed the left, sort of a great deal of, of what has kind of fueled the left's um, relationship to politics for a long time. And, you know, it, it does seem like at least some of the post-2020 election kind of... Um, uh, at least kind of affect of, of the right has sort of gone in this direction, right? Where it, it, it ends up being this kind of denunciation of the unfairness of the system. 
Yeah, the the 2020 election was kind of like 2016 for Barney in the sense that, well, okay, you have this first loss, but you don't necessarily have to interpret it as a sort of a thing that, that happened because of in, incurable contradictions in your own sort of political coalition. Like you can still hold out hope, but, but um, how the left sort of reacted after its final defeat in 2020 was to say, well, okay, the left can no longer win the working class, which means that history, like we're all gonna be living in the vampire's castle forever. It's gonna be impossible to imagine um, the end of capitalism or the change of neoliberalism or whatever. Like it's easier to imagine the end of the world, all of those fucking cliches. But like the, the, the recent sort of actions by the working class in Canada, America just shows that, no, that's not how it works at all. Just because a particular faction uh, of the middle class sort of loses in their bid for power, history doesn't end. And whatever happens to the right wing sort of attempts to capitalize on, on like working class anger, uh, the working class is not going away and they're probably not going to go back in the box from now on. Like they are going to keep being these independent free agents fighting their own fights, picking their own battles and not really giving a rip about sort of their soy distant leaders and, and what they think about like what they should and shouldn't do. So in a way, uh, I think that's a very... Um, heartening development, actually. Like I put not your faith in princess, as as some someone, some old white man once said. But the good thing is, you probably don't need to put your faith in princess today because there are alternatives on the scene. Right, and this you know is maybe most ironic in terms of the you know the kind of small um, faction that we're both familiar with of. Yeah, the, basically the kind of Bernie to Trump um, sort of online faction, right? Which yeah. interestingly has become more, um, you know, and I think all of them need a, they need a master, right? They need, they need someone who can be their, um, their standard bearer in whom they can kind of invest political hopes. And so what you see now is that they're, you know, these people who maybe didn't even vote for Trump at all, um, or maybe did in 2020, but um, would have, you know, voted for after voting for Bernie in the primary or something like, you know, this is a, you know, a relatively small group of people, but they're, they've sort of been interesting to observe because now they've become sort of more Trumpian than the, than the people who are actually like MAGA people all along. Right. And yeah. they'll, you know, when, when you have sort of people who are longstanding sort of Trumpian, right types sort of criticizing certain things that Trump did or didn't do, you know, it's, it's these people who will castigate them for insufficient loyalty to yeah. um, the great man. And also, you know, in relation to what you just brought up, they will at this point kind of, you know, it's, it's as if they really think that the only, the only meaningful political project for them is getting Trump reelected as far as I can tell. So, you know, the continuity here is that, that Trump has just replaced Bernie for them.
Yeah, um, right? exactly. I mean, but, it's, but it's what they're of... but what they're largely not seeing is the way that um, you know there are these kind of insurgent energies that you know are bubbling up in ways that don't you know that that if one party or the other might capitalize on, but that don't respond to orders from yeah you know Trump or anybody else. Yeah, yeah, that's a good note to close it on. Like you know, the more yeah. things change, the more they stay the same with some of these people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in any case, um, yeah, thanks for the conversation. Yeah, thanks uh, a lot for having me on. I think it was a really good conversation. Yeah, uh, and uh, people can follow you at Tinksorg and uh, you know keep up with your writing at Unheard and elsewhere. Yeah, great. Mm-hmm.